Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Welcome back to Dr. Raj's Sleep Board Review. And let's talk about insomnia. So, 48-year-old woman is a, with a 68-year history of problems going to sleep and staying asleep. She does not remember having difficulty sleeping when her children were young, but has gradually experienced increased uh, pro- problems with sleep. These problems intensified during her husband's recent hospitalization and emergency cardiac surgery. She now dreads bedtime. She's concerned about her sleeping problems and fears that sleep loss is causing her to be irritable with her husband and also affects her immune system. Because she's so concerned about getting enough sleep, gets into bed at 8.30 and cannot fall asleep until 11.30 or midnight. She then awakens at 2 a.m. and then sleeps off and on until around 7.30 a.m. in the morning. She naps in the afternoon to make up for lost sleep at night. Who's up for this question? Is a, any, Does the Fong want to do it again? Does Drew want to do it? Uh, I can go. Awesome, Drew. Before we, before we go to this, um, let me just finish reading this. She snores slightly but does not have any witness apneas or uncomfortable leg sensations. She has hypertension, history of depression, BMI is 31. She currently takes no meds. Her physical exam is normal. Which of the following statements is true about this patient's sleep? And before you answer that, in this vignette, is there any bad habits this patient may have in regards to her her sleep? Well, her sleep hygiene sounds pretty bad. She's in bed before she's tired and stays in bed and doesn't fall asleep for three hours. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, I mean, Drew, isn't the bed only and meant it, for one thing? What is the bed meant for? I thought it was two things, but uh, yeah, sleep. Well, wait, wait, wait. this is a PG uh, <laughs> course, but uh, the one thing was what was sleep. I mean, what else are you referring to? Uh, yeah, you're right. Usually, uh, <laughs> in, 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 PG, in PG world, that's the only thing. All right. So definitely, what do you think about her napping during the day? What do you think about yeah, that? That's not that's not so good either. I agree. So with that being said, what do you think is the right answer over here? Must be C like dog. What about um, we I really feel the theme here is insomnia, right? So can yeah. strong insomnia strongly contribute to elevated blood pressure? 
I don't think strongly contributing. Don't get me wrong. I'm sure when you're sleep deprived, cortisol levels, hormones will be up. But I don't feel that's going to be strongly contributing to her elevated blood pressure. Does insomnia improve as women enter menopause, Drew? Uh, I would assume it gets worse. And it really does get worse. And how about depression and antidepressant medications? Do they have no effect on insomnia? No, I, I think they affect certain uh, certain stages of sleep. I don't remember which ones. And depression and insomnia are very highly associated. You know what I mean? So I think it is your depression causing insomnia or vice versa. It seems like her insomnia is really going to be perpetuated. That's the buzzword here by a lot of her beliefs and behaviors. And she's making matters worse by trying to sleep better. So yeah. here is definitely going to be C. Thank you, Drew. And when we nice. talk about the <laughs> international classifications of sleep disorders, this is the definition of insomnia. Difficulty initiating sleep, maintaining sleep, waking up too early. And you, a couple things, everyone. You got to have adequate opportunity to fall asleep. You know, you can't be sleep deprived. And you really got to have a deficit during the day. So if someone's sleeping six hours and they won three gold medals during the Olympics, a Pulitzer Prize and an Academy Award, I'm not going to be worried about this person. It's the person who's falling asleep at work, becoming late to work, you know, and chronic insomnia, which is what they're going to ask you the most on the board exams, is defined as having symptoms three times a week for three consecutive months. Things we don't use as terminology anymore, everyone. There's no more primary and secondary insomnia terminology. Secondary insomnia is considered comorbid, And why do we say that? It's because we feel it's important to treat the underlying disorder and the insomnia, treat the heart failure, treat the depression, but also treat the insomnia. Just don't feel that one's going to automatically treat the other. And there's no more childhood diagnosis of insomnia. We use the same category and definitions for insomnia for adults and for children. And when we talk about these P's, and you're wondering why did you know we have this question, that we feel that the three P's is Spielman's model for insomnia, which is some people are predisposed for insomnia. And when you do get a inciting event, like your loved one having emergent cardiac surgery, something is going to precipitate it. And after the precipitating event ends, most of us will be okay and sleep again. But in some cases, it perpetuates. And you start doing things like, God forbid, drinking alcohol before bed, getting to bed much, much earlier. These perpetuate insomnia. So this is called the Spillman's uh, three P's of insomnia. And down in the yellow over here, if they ask you, does insomnia increase mortality? I know all of us are like, no, 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 it's just insomnia. Insomnia does increase mortality, but especially those who have short sleep duration. That's really the big one right there. So insomnia has many, many things that can cause it. Of course, generalized poor sleep hygiene, alcohol, caffeine, nicotine, your sleep schedule, psychiatric conditions, medical conditions, many, many stressors, circadian rhythm disorders, medications, and of course, primary sleep disorders, whether it be obstructive sleep apnea or restless leg syndrome to uh, prevent you from initiating the sleep. So let me just um, kind of list these out and then I'm going to stop right there. So when we talk about the ICSD-3 uh, categories of insomnia that they may ask you on your board exams. These are the ones that we're going to kind of pick up with tomorrow. There's idiopathic insomnia. These are patients who have lifelong insomnia, very hard to treat insomnia during childhood. We'll talk about inadequate sleep hygiene, which is a little bit of everyone nowadays. Paradoxical insomnia, which is why we like to get a sleep journal or diary or do something called actigraphy. 
um, psychophysiologic insomnia, which is the vignette that we just went over. And these are going to be uh, people who just have this feeling where they feel that the insomnia is going to cause anxiety during the next day. They don't have generalized anxiety disorder, but the anxiety, they have anxiety towards sleep and they start doing things that make the insomnia worse. And of course, you know, on your sleep, your pulmonary boards, you're not going to get behavioral insomnia of childhood. You know, we definitely will see that in the sleep boards and behavioral insomnia of childhood is one of two things. Sleep onset association insomnia, where a child has to fall asleep with a blanket or getting rocked or breastfeeding. And the other is going to be limit setting insomnia of childhood, where your kid keeps on leaving the room to say goodnight, to get another kiss, to get a glass of water. And limit setting insomnia pretty much means that I suck as a parent and that's why my kid's doing this. But I all get kind of classified as behavioral insomnia of childhood. So I want to start off a couple of slides back and just kind of let everyone know what is the thought process behind insomnia is that we don't use primary and secondary insomnia anymore. You know what I mean? The big thought process is insomnia needs to be treated. It's a comorbid disease. You know, that's the most important thing. And so we want to know who is predisposed to getting insomnia. Is it you? Is it me? And that's why we have the Spielman's model of the three P's. Who's going to be predisposed? That could be people with anxiety, people with depression, you know, people with bipolar disorder, seasonal affective disorder. And what happens is that there's a precipitating event. So the first P is predisposed. Second P is precipitating. What precipitates something? A sudden death, a marriage, a divorce. And then in some cases, it just resolves. But in other cases, you know, people do things to perpetuate this unfortunate insomnia. Where are things perpetuated? Hey, you know what? I'm not sleeping good. I'm going to bed early. I'm going to drink some alcohol. You know what? I'm going to stay in bed till I fall asleep. And that is something that perpetuates insomnia. And that's why one of our first questions we had was something called psychophysiologic insomnia, where you, you ruminate about sleep. You have anxiety only about sleep itself, and you start developing these bad habits to make it worse. Insomnia, so many things contribute to it. You know what I mean? It's not just about sleep hygiene. It's about other medical conditions, CHF, cirrhotic, nephrotic, all the psychiatric conditions, depression, bipolar circadian rhythm disorders. I can't say enough that, you know, in the elderly who say, hey, you know, I'm waking up too early. Many of us will say, hey, that's insomnia. It may not be insomnia. It could be advanced sleep phase disorder. You know, they're just the morning lark. You know, so it really, really depends. And of course, you know, medications, and we'll go over some of these medications in itself. And of course, you could have insomnia with a primary sleep disorder, it's not a, you know, it's very, very common, whether it's going to be obstructive sleep apnea, and many people could get misdiagnosed for insomnia or OSA because of those multiple awakenings and arousals throughout the night. And restless leg syndrome, well, that prevents you from falling asleep. It gives you that sleep onset insomnia. So we mentioned this last time, where are some of the, the subtypes? And this is going to be based upon the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition. And these are going to be the types of insomnia. And we'll go through most of these. And then the last one I wanted to mention right here is going to be behavioral insomnia of childhood. And we ended there, and you guys may have forgot, but that's going to be two things. Number one is called sleep association insomnia, being breastfed when you fall asleep, having a favorite blanket when you fall asleep, just like Linus from the Peanuts cartoons, if you remember that. Or it could be what's called um, limit setting insomnia, where the, the kid has a curtain call, meaning that can I have a glass of water? Can I have a hug? Can I have this? 
And it pretty much we joked about meaning when we talk about behavioral insomnia of childhood, especially limit setting, it's just telling me that, wow, we're not really good parents. That's what it says. So adjusting insomnia is an acute insomnia. Remember, chronic insomnia is having symptoms for at least three months, three times a week. And this is going to be um, when someone has a momentous life-changing event or an acute illness. You know, and of course, many people not only are getting post-traumatic stress and insomnia after ending up in the ICU, of course, during this uh, COVID pandemic idiopathic insomnia, well, these are going to be uh, no identifiable cause. It happens earlier in life. It's a chronic lifelong course, you know, and when we talk about idiopathic insomnia, super hard to treat, whether it's going to be with medications or cognitive behavioral therapy and sleep hygiene. And there's another type of insomnia just for people taking the boards called familial fatal insomnia. You know, and when we think about this fatal familial insomnia, it actually is based upon the prion protein gene, and that's going to be codon number 178. So that's a little bored pearl for some of my sleep fellows listening today. So inadequate sleep hygiene, well, that's everyone, right? And sleep hygiene is definitely part of the treatment for insomnia, but sleep hygiene in itself does not treat insomnia. It's sleep hygiene combined with cognitive behavioral therapy. But what are people doing wrong when we talk about sleep hygiene? You know, I look at some of the things here, clock watching. If someone tells me, you know, every night I always seem to wake up at uh, 2.15. I'm like, how do you know it's 2.15? Because they look at the clock and next thing you know, your body's entrained to wake up at 2.15. And many of us, what, we wake up right before our alarm clock at 6 a.m. in the morning, like at 5.45, you know, because we're entrained to do that. Technology, you know, put it away. I can't say enough. I'm not worried about you just taking out your smartphone. It's the Snapchat. It's going to be the TikTok. It's going to be the Instagram. Or for my overproductive people, it could be the email where you're getting scolded by your program director. So you know, <laughs> that will definitely make you not go back to sleep. And of course, when we talk about having insomnia, you do those bad habits. And where these bad habits, when I have insomnia, I mean you snack, right? And I'm sure not everyone's snacking on uh, Avion water and celery sticks. What are you snacking on? Maybe some Doritos Cool Ranch or some haagen ice cream, you know? And that's why weight gain is very common with insomnia. And also, it's very important to know hormones. And there are some hormones related with sleep and circadian rhythm, like leptin and ghrelin, right? And leptin is, uh, begins with the letter L. L means lose weight. Also, the L means what cells secrete them? The lipid cells called adipocytes. And you want to sleep to lose a little weight versus the G word, which is ghrelin. Ghrelin means gain weight, and they're secreted by the G in gastric cells, cells that line the stomach. And put a couple of pictures over here. Yeah. So I don't know if anyone knows what this little creature is right here. Anakit, what is this little creature I'm circling? What is that? I'm not sure. That's a gremlin. And I heard during one of the my uh, students during a board review said that. How do they remember ghrelin means gain weight? Because they remember this classic movie from the 80s called Gremlins are always wanting to eat things, you know. And of course, this movie right here, which is the black and white movie, um, Sahar, do you know what movie that is by any chance? I don't know. I don't know. It just means Raj, Dr. Raj is very old. This is Poltergeist. It's not the ring. And this is a look at it's a picture of someone staring at the TV. So, of course, don't watch any TV before going to bed. Avoid things that give you insomnia, like the news, like uh, anything that, you know, will just um, keep you mentally engaged and not be able to transition into sleep. Nowadays, it's not really a TV. It's a lot about using that technology in bed. 
So there were studies that actually show that we tend to binge watch quite a bit, and therefore we, it's hard for us to transition into sleep. So of course, we want to put that technology away. There is something called paradoxical insomnia, which is kind of like sleep misperception. This is always the patient that comes in that says, doctor, I haven't slept in two weeks. And you're like, no, um, you'd be dead. But, you know, this is one of those misperceptions. And this is one of the big things why we do a sleep log, a sleep journal, or something called actigraphy, which we'll talk about shortly, to tell the truth behind their sleep. This was going to be the insomnia etiology from the question, psychophysiologic insomnia. We talked about the word, they ruminate about sleep. They have anxiety towards sleep only. They do things that make the insomnia worse. And then of course, you wanna look at medications that can cause insomnia. And what are these medications, everyone? Antidepressants. Remember, serotonin is an alerting neurotransmitter secreted from the dorsal raphe nucleus. So if you prevent the reuptake, more serotonin, more insomnia. So SSRIs, SNRIs, norepinephrine, a uh, alerting neurotransmitter, you know, there are definitely some stimulating tricyclic antidepressants out there. So you should know the TCAs that cause sedation, you definitely use those, and they're ones that cause you to be stimulated. Beta blockers can do it. Supposedly, they block melatonin. And definitely the beta blockers that also have alpha activity, like carvedilol or labetalol, may also have more effect on fatigue during the day. Bronchodilators will keep you up at night. Decongestants that contain pseudofedrine, of course. Evil steroids, glucocorticoids will definitely keep you up at night. And not to mention just stimulants in general, whether we're talking about nicotine or uh, the amphetamines. So how do you uh, work up insomnia, the evaluation? It's always about a history, getting a sleep diary or sleep log. You do not need to order a polysomography uh, or any sleep study to diagnose insomnia, only to exclude sleep disordered breathing if, if you suspect it. And of course, one of the things we can use, at least in theory, but not practically, is something called actigraphy. So what is actigraphy, everyone? Well, it rhymes with the word activity. So it's kind of like activity monitor and you wear it on your wrist, just kind of like the watches many people wear, like these Fitbits that they have an accelerometer, a light sensor. And basically, here's a little example of what a, a results of actigraphy show. The blue over here means no movement. No movement means you're probably sleeping. So this tells you when you're asleep, if you're moving, you can see that you have these... Uh, these black lines that indicate movement, that means you're going to be awake. So it tells you the truth behind your sleep. So it can be very helpful for people for the insomnia evaluation, good for telling you what total sleep time is going to be. It's going to be helpful for circadian rhythm disorders that we're going to talk about, you know, probably during our next section. But of course, nowadays, everyone loves technology. And in fact, we are using this technology to do research in sleep. And I'm sure many of the people listening today own one of these things, whether it's going to be a Jawbone, a Fitbit, uh, there are many names out there. You were to ask me, what is the mainstay therapy for insomnia? It's always going to be three letters, cognitive behavioral therapy. Cognitive is your thoughts, behaviors is going to be your actions, and this is always going to be the, the go-to thing on the board exams. You know, ironically, it's probably more expensive to treat with cognitive behavioral therapy than giving drugs, but you always want to do CBT first. And I can't say it enough, sleep hygiene in itself is not a treatment for insomnia. It has to be combined with cognitive behavioral therapy. 
Many studies have shown that CBT is good not just for chronic management for insomnia, but acute management for insomnia also. So what are some of the forms of CBT? Well, when we talk about the cognition, your thoughts, you want to have you want to have realistic expectations. You want to avoid excessive worrying. You want to avoid unrealistic concerns. You may have something called worry time where the patient will only think about things that bother them uh, during a set time during the day. That's not going to be in bed at night. And of course, not just to dwell on these problems, but to come up with solutions. Two things that we do very commonly for the sleep boards and reality are sleep restriction, which is a set bedtime and set wake time, even on weekends, even on holidays. You want to stick to that um, that schedule. And then, of course, stimulus control we mentioned is basically the bed is only meant for sleeping. And if you can initiate sleep within a, a ballpark, 15 to 20 minutes, leave the bed and do things that are non-stimulating in dim light and only come back to bed when you're ready to sleep again. Uh, we don't do a lot of biofeedback techniques, which is kind of like when you talk about your worries and talk about how to relax and transition to sleep and you have markers like your heart rate to see if your heart rate goes down during these sessions. We don't commonly do it. It's mainly done for educational purposes. Paradoxical intention is the opposite, and it's not used that common, which if someone can't fall asleep, you say, well, just stay up as long as you can, and somehow it works. That's rarely going to be the correct answer in clinical practice or on board exams. But we'll spend the most time talking about pharmacotherapy. And remember that when we talk about any of these medications for insomnia, these sedative hypnotics, that, you know, um, they're all going to appear on something called the Beers List, which is the American Geriatric Society, because we worry about the elderly, we worry about falls, you know, and no matter what medication that you're on, nothing enhances daytime performance. And of course, they all have their side effects. And let's focus about uh, what's going to be asked on your board exams and how you're going to help your patients. So one of the FDA-approved medications are going to be these non-benzodiazepine receptor agonists. We call those Z-drugs because of their generic names, Zalpalone, which is Sonata, Zolpidem, which is Ambien, and Zalpalone, which is Lunesta. And I put this in this order because when we talk about insomnia, you want to know if it's sleep onset versus sleep maintenance versus early morning awakenings. Uh, if you have sleep onset, you want to pick medications with a short half-life, uh, even though they tend to be a little more addicting sometimes, especially if they're benzos, versus if you have uh, early morning awakenings, those are very hard to treat. You need a long half-life, and sometimes they could give you residual daytime uh, fatigue. Uh, Zolpidem in itself, go figure, comes in many different forms. There is a sublingual form that is very, very short acting. Uh, there is a intranasal form, <laughs> go figure. And of course, there's Ambien and Ambien Oral comes in both the classic Ambien dose that now is FDA approved for the five milligrams. And of course, they have a CR dose uh, that's more for the, that, that controlled release. But ironically, the half-life of both the traditional Ambien and the CR are almost the same, even though the CR does tend to be a little bit longer. And the way I remember is Zopaclone and uh, Zapalone. Sonata, uh, Zapalone begins with the letter S. Think of S for short acting. Uh, Lunesta with its Zopaclone begins with the letter L. Think of it for longer acting. And of course, when we talk about these as the non-benzodiazepine receptor agonists, the benzodiazepine receptor is a receptor for many different things. 
including traditional benzos and barbiturates and alcohol. And the GABA receptor has many different subtypes. There's the alpha, the beta, and the gamma as the main ones. And these Z drugs work on the alpha receptor, which is more indicated for sleep versus these non-selective benzodiazepines that will also give you anticonvulsant effect and zeolytic effect, and they'll work on the other receptors as well. And when we talk about benzodiazepines, you never want to cold turkey the benzodiazepines because in the worst case scenario, if they're in long term, of course, we always think about things like seizures. But even with our non-benzos, we definitely do clinically feel like they should be tapered off also to prevent rebound insomnia. Other things to mention, melatonin is not a drug. It is a dietary supplement. And the key thing is that it's not a very potent sleeping aid. It's not about the dosing. It's about the timing. And it's very good for shifting your circadian rhythm, depending upon where you when you give it. We'll talk about that when we talk about circadian rhythm disorders. But to shift your circadian rhythm, usually we think about doses of 0.5 milligrams to 3 milligrams. If you're using melatonin for things like REM movement disorder, which we'll talk about in parasomnias, then we'll use higher doses, maybe 8 to 12 milligrams in itself. Right next to it is another FDA-approved drug for insomnia called uh, the melatonin receptor uh, agonist. There's uh, two uh, medications that got FDA approval. One goes by the brand name Rosarium. Uh, the other one is a drug that goes by the brand name Hitlios, and they work on the melatonin receptors. Rosarium works more on the melatonin 1 receptor, which is more indicated for sleep, more than the M2 receptor, which is more indicated for circadian rhythm shifting, which is what Hitlios uh, is FDA approved for. And we use that for a specific uh, circadian rhythm disorder called non-24. Rosarum is good for sleep onset insomnia. It has a very short half-life. And because it has nothing, the melatonin receptor has nothing to do with our respiratory drive, it's good for people who have respiratory issues such as COPD or obstructive sleep apnea. Doxepin uh, is a tricyclic antidepressant uh, that got FDA approval for chronic insomnia. Uh, it's used at much, much lower doses when we use it for insomnia. We're using it at the three and six milligram dosing. And its main way it causes to be sleepy is through antihistamine effects, but it also has anticholine effects. And remember, everyone, that acetylcholine is an alerting neurotransmitter. So anytime you inhibit it, of course, it's going to make you somewhat sleepy. But usually it's the anticholinergic effects that have a lot of the unwanted side effects, like a dry mouth, constipation, tachycardia. But doxepin at the three and six milligram doses is a medication that is, you know, useful for people who are going to be combining CBT and being on chronic medication. Of course, you worry about a serotonin syndrome if they're going to be on other uh, medications such as the SSRIs. One of my buzzwords for the board exams, I did mention earlier that there are uh, sedating tricyclic antidepressants. Think of the mnemonic acid, go figure. What does acid stand for? A for amitriptyline, C for clomipramine, I for impramine, and D for doxepin. So these are going to be the sedating tricyclic antidepressants. Another FDA-approved category of 
insomnia medication are called Adora's dual orexin receptor antagonists. The two on the market are, you can see their generic names over here. Their brand names are Belsumra and Davigo. And orexin is an alerting neurotransmitter. So it works by blocking. It's an antagonist. Good things about this medication is that there's less dependence, less addiction on here. These Doras uh, have been studied in Alzheimer's patients. and They unfortunately have a lot of sleeping issues. So it's nice that they're focusing on the elderly, elderly and people with dementia. And these are the two medications also that are FDA approved. And I will not use these medications in people who have liver failure. And of course, there are a lot of herbal remedies out there and they all have the same um, downside, which is, you know, they are lacking those great randomized blinded controlled trials. The question is what dose, what route, what form. And the technical message is always that you should definitely let your physician or healthcare provider know if you're taking any of these medications, starting from valerian root, lavender, tryptophan, and of course, the hot topic is always going to be CBD nowadays, people taking it for sleep. And you have to be careful of non-FDA approved medications. You'll be surprised what I see here in the sleep clinic. People coming to me with their pills called wake up on time pills. That scares me. People stopping their CPAP because they're taking their sleep apnea relief pills. This is not a joke. It scares me when I see these things. But let me go for some Beyond the Pearls sleep medication review. So these are my tips for both the pulmonary and sleep boards. Know your benzodiazepines and the Z-drug half-lives. For the benzodiazepines, remember that triazolam goes by the brand name Halcyon, has the shortest half-life, so it's going to be very addictive. Flurazepam goes by the brand name Dalmain, is going to have the longest half-life for a benzodiazepine. Remember the sedating TCAs. I use that mnemonic acid, D for the doxepin, A for amitriptyline, I for imitriptyline, and chloramine for the C. And remember that MAOIs are the most potent REM inhibiting sleep inhibitors. Can't say we use a lot of MAOIs, but they're very potent uh, REM sleep inhibitors. When you look at an a sleep study looking at the EEG, there's something called Prozac eyes, and we see this when you're on any of these SSRIs. Remember that people could have REM movement disorders when they're on SSRIs and SNRIs because they actually prevent um, atonia and REM sleep. So you want to look out for these medications if you have someone with REM movement disorders. Bupropion, which goes by the brand name Wellbutrin, please remember it increases REM sleep. And we use it in people with depression and restless leg syndrome. It's a good drug to use. You have depression and restless leg syndrome. It actually increases REM sleep. Denazepril, which is a medication used for people with Alzheimer's disease, can cause insomnia. Why? Because it's acetylcholinesterase inhibitor. So if you have more acetylcholine, it's an alerting neurotransmitter. And acetylcholine, of course, is also a neurotransmitter in REM. So you can get very, very vivid dreams. In fact, they could get some nightmares. An atypical antipsychotic known as Abilify is actually minimally sedating because I know many people give quintonapine, which is called Seroquel for many people to sleep. So Abilify not only has the least amount of weight gain, which is another side effect of atypicals, they are the minimally sedating antipsychotics. And Boostpar, which is the uh, brand name, the generic name Boostpirone, is one of the non-sedating anxiolytics, which is important because every anxiolytic I think about makes you sedate. So this is one of the only non-sedating anxiolytic over here. And 
Prazosine, at least in the sleep literature, we used to think a lot of it for nightmares, but you know, recent studies uh, show that it does not work for nightmares. So let's use a couple of quick hitters. I have uh, Sahar, you're gonna bang these out in two seconds. So we have a 29 year old woman with a history of depression referred for PSG and MSLT to evaluate some hypersomnia. Key findings from her nocturnal PSG are listed over here. Which of the following medications is most likely to be the cause of these findings? So there's a total sleep time of 4.30, sleep efficiency of 92%, arousal index of 14 per hour, uh, HI is 1.5, they broke down the sleep stages and one is 7% and two is 73% and three is 20 and there's no REM here. Which one of these drugs could probably show these findings I just mentioned? Is it going to be cotriptyline, fluoxetine, citalopram, phenylzine, or trazodone? Sahar, what do you think? I should be one of the SSRI. There is no REM on the PSD. So, so which one are you going to pick? Fluoxetine. Fluoxetine? Answer here is going to be D, phenylzine. So remember that MAOIs are the most potent inhibitors of REM sleep. I'm not saying we use a lot of them, but that's what they're going to ask you on the board exam. So any, so that's going to be a very important one. MAOIs, everyone, uh, there's going to be main types, MAOIAs, which we use for antidepressant, MAOIBs, the classic one, selegiline, that we use for Parkinson's disease. And we don't use a lot of it because of side effects and because if you enjoy cheese and wine, you could get a tyramine crisis. Someone has to mute their uh, their face. Just, just, so when the MAOR, which class is it? Is it SSRI now? No, I, I would say that it's not a matter of memorizing the most potent, the least potent, because we don't have that information comparing the different SSRIs and SNRIs or TCAs. But we do know that MAOIs are the most potent of the ones here, and that's why I put a bunch of SSRIs here. I gave a TCA here. I put. Trazodone. Uh, SSRIs, they reduce your REM too. That's why you give them in narcolepsy too. So they could all be an appropriate answer, B, C, and D. No, but the key thing is of these, which one will give you, which one will suppress REM the most? Because there's zero REM here. And it's going to be of these, it's the MAOI would do it the most because it's the most potent inhibitor of REM sleep. That's why I put two SSRIs, a TCA, Trazodone, and only one MAOI. And that's why it's very important to realize that the most potent inhibitors of REM sleep. Okay. Which of the following has been most commonly described as a sleep related consequence of lithium use? Sahar, is it sleepwalking, REM sleep without atonia, narcolepsy, sleep disordered breathing, or restless leg syndrome? I think it's restless leg. And the answer here is going to be sleepwalking. Why is because lithium is one of the few things that increases slow wave sleep. And we mentioned that earlier in the lecture, other things can increase slow wave sleep will be things like the oxabates. And because you have more N3 slow wave delta sleep, you get more parasomnias. And what parasomnia is that gonna be? It's gonna be sleepwalking. So don't use a lot of lithium, but they love lithium on board exams. All right. We'll give one to Anakit over here. Anakit, 64-year-old woman has been diagnosed with depression and is complaining of difficulty sleeping. Which of the following agents would be most likely to address both of these concerns? Mirtazepine, sertraline, venlafaxine, or fluoxetine? 
Maybe Mercuproprion. You know, you, sh- you should have went with your first gut. The answer is Mertazapine. Mercuproprion is alerting. It makes you awake. You know what I mean? Sertraline, venlafaxine, fluoxetine are all SSRIs, SNRIs. Their side effects are going to be insomnia. So if you want the patient to fall asleep, I know a lot of you folks, my fellows, they love mirtazapine. goes by the brand name Remeron. And one unique thing about Remeron is the name. It's Rem-On. It keeps, it keeps it lets you have REM sleep still. So think about this medication where it helps out with sleeping and depression. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.